The following episode contains discussion of drug use and suicide. Please be advised. At the end of the day, no one is going to get better if you over-medicate, if you put them to work physically, if your punishments are so severe that you actually end up physically hurting them. They're not going to learn anything from that. They're going to be worse coming out than they were when in. Welcome to Mad Waters. One family's story from both sides of the mental health system and our search to find those fixing it. I'm Adrienne Seifert. And I'm Michael Seifert. And the voice you just heard was our daughter's, whose experiences inspired our pursuit of something better. I remember exactly where I was when I got the call. Seattle Children's Hospital, waiting room. I was still slightly in awe that we'd cinched a coveted spot in the renowned Dialectical Behavioral Treatment Program and that the director of the program had taken our family on as clients. DBT was the gold standard treatment for the most difficult diagnoses and behaviors, borderline, anorexia, bipolar. It would do what none of the therapists, medications, or research studies had done thus far, wouldn't it? When I heard the landlord's words on the phone, it felt like a sucker punch. One more complaint from another tenant, and you'll be evicted, with three days to vacate the premises. We landed in the Pacific Northwest full of hope. It would be our fresh start. In that three-bedroom apartment overlooking Lake Washington in the Cascade Mountains, we'd leave behind the revolving door of emergency rooms, inpatient units, pain, and dysfunction. As much as that call horrified me, I'd be lying if I said it was unexpected. The apartment was pockmarked with craters in the walls, doors, and baseboards, the result of angry outbursts. But the image of my 7- and 13-year-old daughters sitting on furniture in the middle of a sidewalk with nowhere to go made me shake with fear and bitter frustration. Why could no one help? How could modern medicine fail my daughter so completely? Fail all of us. And as the options fell away one by one, every expert, every promise evaporated. In order to keep her safe, would we have to let her go? I'm Adrienne Seifert. I'm Michael Seifert. And this is Mad Waters. The first time I heard about a residential treatment center, I was in my daughter's psychiatrist's office. Although the psychiatrist recounted another girl's particular experience with residential treatment as positive, we listened silently, resolving never to resort to sending our child away, especially for months or, in this other girl's case, years. Who would do such a thing? But there we were, facing eviction, with only one more outburst, one last invisible line in the sand, standing between us and a future of homelessness. As it would happen, that future came fast and furious. Let's pause and look at how we'd reached this point of no return. 2016 marked a critical turning point. We'd left the East Coast behind, and with it, we hoped, the medicalization of our daughter. On the West Coast, we'd be closer to nature, find alternatives to traditional medicine, build up our beautiful daughter so that she could find her true self, 
beyond the collection of symptoms or diagnoses, beyond the mantle of mental health. For a brief spell, the waters were placid, so to speak. Her new school was a good one, and she made friends. An amazing college graduate came to tutor her after school with all the patience and caring imaginable. As a family, we explored a new, vibrant city, carving out our place in it with as much positive intention as we could muster. But it did not last. Why? I don't think anyone, including her, could answer that. And soon, what might have been construed as teen rebellion surged into risk-taking that seemed oblivious to terrifying consequences. Shortly before Christmas, we got a call from the school that our 13-year-old daughter had disappeared. Police were alerted, and a search began. I spent hours in that bitterly cold night combing the streets with her pictures. I went to soup kitchens and shelters, bail bondsmen, who, by the way, asked me if I was crazy to be in that area after dark. But you did it. You found her. But what had happened in that place was every parent's nightmare, and suffice it to say, we would have done anything, given anything, to prevent it. And although we thought things couldn't get worse, we were wrong. And a few months later, I found myself on our apartment balcony, where I ended up being the only thing between my 13-year-old child and a four-story fall. What would you do? What could we have done at that moment? There was not a single avenue that we hadn't explored or a resource we hadn't exploited. The objective had changed, though. We needed to keep her safe. Yes, we wanted to find support, a better, more accurate diagnosis, maybe even someone who could finally reach her. But above all else, we had to keep her alive. And so? It is with this that we made our decision to send her to a residential treatment center. Yet... I deeply regret doing it, and feel incredible anger that there seemed to be no other choice. I share my wife's feelings of sadness and despair. However, as a mental health professional, I had a different perspective. I do not have the words or time to share the countless stories of parents who had lost complete control of their children with tragic results. I can never know what would have happened if she had not gone to residential treatment. I can know with absolute confidence that if there is a place for any type of treatment away from home, the process by which that treatment is chosen, what occurs within the walls of the facility, the involvement of the family, the background of the staff, etc., all of it needs to be transparent and have outcome measures that are verifiable and accessible. There are people doing this work. One of the first to deeply investigate this world is our guest today. Our guest today is a New York Times bestselling author whose book, Help at Any Cost, How the Troubled Teen Industry Cons Parents and Hurts Kids, exposed the frightening and tragic world of residential treatment. Maya Salovitz is also the author of Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction, which is widely recognized as an important advance in thinking about the nature of addiction and how to cope with it personally and politically. 
She has written for numerous publications from Washington Post to The Atlantic and is author or co-author of five other books, including two written with Bruce Perry, a distinction she now shares with Oprah Winfrey. She has won awards from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the Drug Policy Alliance, the American Psychological Association, and the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology for 30 years of groundbreaking writing on addiction, drug policy, and neuroscience. But perhaps the most noteworthy thing is that she was my college dorm mate at Columbia in McBain, seventh floor. Welcome, Maya. Thank you so much for having me. It brings back old times. It certainly does. Before we begin, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the interplay between mental health and substance use from your own perspective. Sure. So um, for many people, if probably most, um, people who have addictions tend to have pre-existing mental health issues. Now, these may not be full-blown disorders, they may just be some sort of outlying temperament. So you might be, you know, extremely bold, extremely impulsive. On the other hand, you might be extremely cautious and extremely anxious. So you're probably not going to have both of those things. Some people do, but um, it's basically you're different and you feel different. And that often means that you get bullied or you just feel like you can't connect to people. And so these kind of traits, when they kind of build up over time and get um, mixed up with the environment and, you know, people have experiences and they affect them, um, these can turn into mental illnesses or addictions. And so like adolescence is the time when both of these things tend to come on. There are some things that start earlier, but adolescence is a very important part of a very important time for brain development. And so a lot of times you are, if you're going to be depressed, that's when you'll get depressed. And if you're going to be addicted, that's when you'll get addicted. Often if you are also depressed because you are trying to feel better and you find a substance that works for you. Can you describe a little bit for those people who have not read the book, um, sort of what it covers um, and which treatment centers you were drawn to write about? Sure. So I was just curious about this idea of tough love. Uh, when I was actively addicted, I was terrified of people and I was using so that I could feel like socially okay. And so the idea that treatment would involve a bunch of people screaming at you and you having no privacy and you having your life entirely controlled by some institution, like that was my idea of hell. And I was like, why would anybody think this would make you want to do anything other than more drugs rather than less? Um, and so I was trying to figure out, like, where did that idea come from? Because that deterred me from seeking help. Um, and then I discovered this whole world of what has become known as the troubled teen industry. And this is a whole set of residential institutions that basically took the idea from drug treatment that we need to break people down in order to fix them and applies it to adolescence. And so I discovered that the modern origin of this idea is with this cult called Synanon that was founded in the 50s. It was founded by an AA member and um, former 
failed stand-up comic, which may or may not be relevant. But anyway, he clearly had an ego on him and he decided that AA wasn't tough enough and that if we're going to help um, addicted people, we need to like force the ideas of the steps on people. So instead of like admitting powerlessness, you would be made powerless. Instead of finding humility, you would be humiliated. Um, this also turns out to be basically a recipe for a cult, which is why Synanon ended up uh, stockpiling weapons and forcing people to swap partners. And most notoriously, it put a rattlesnake with the rattles cut off in the mailbox of an attorney who had started to win cases against them because um, basically this crazy place, the juvenile justice system was sending kids in order to be fixed at. And they thought it was this wonderful rehabilitative thing because they were so tough. Um, meanwhile, it was just absolutely uh, abusive. What a horrible story. What was the reaction to your book? Well, um, it was... It got a lot of attention in terms of uh, legislative attention. Unfortunately, that did not actually um, go anywhere. But it basically people hadn't realized that this was a systemic thing. People thought, oh, there's this one bad place and oh, there's this other bad place. And here's this other bad place. They sort of hadn't put together that this was a whole ideology where the abuse is the treatment. And this is what's different between troubled teen places and just your sort of average residential psychiatric hospital. Some residential psychiatric hospitals do buy into this terrible ideology, but a lot of them don't. Um, so you have to kind of split that off. And that was the category that I wanted to warn parents about because there's absolutely no evidence that breaking people to fix them works. Yeah, that is a great point. Um, and I, you know, that's one of the things this podcast is about, that we have seen the gamut of what has been offered. And I think what is so frustrating for many parents, um, including us, is that we have yet to find good things that do work on a regular basis. And I think that's probably the frustration of many people who are looking for treatment. Um, and there are so many alarming things in your book about this world. Um, there's certainly no time to go into all of them. You highlighted a few of them. Um, you know, the lack of oversight or regulations, the bold-faced lies that uh, the proprietors of these places tell, the apparent disregard for pain of others, um, by staff members, um, and the list goes on. Um, when you were researching it, what was the most surprising thing that you learned? It's it's really hard to say because, like, I knew that this was terrible, but I wasn't. I didn't know quite how far it extended. And then, you know, I'd be people. I'd go to a party. Somebody would ask me, like, "Oh, what are you working on?" I would say, "You know, I'm doing this thing about the troubled teen industry." And inevitably, in that little circle of three or four people, there would be one person who had either been sent themselves, had a relative or friend sent, or knew somebody. Um, and so it was, I came to see that like, this is a huge national thing. And I mean, it was, it also was a real, it really, really grew during the peak of the drug war in the 90s. So, you know, Nancy Reagan had her favorite program called Straight Inc., 50,000 kids went through this place and they were basically having kids restrain each other and throw each other on the floor and hold them down to the point 
um, where they would like wet or soil themselves because they wouldn't let them go get up to go to the bathroom. Um, and this was like supposedly a good treatment center. Um, so just the fact that there could be all this abuse and that it could be so widely accepted um, was pretty shocking to me. And just sort of figuring out how it, you know, fit together. Um, and just, yeah, the fact of its widespreadness was basically the most surprising thing. It is surprising. And it's something that we have struggled with as parents because I think part of, and I would love your feedback on this, part of what um, what the problem is and why this is allowed to continue, I think, is that people have their own shame about talking about it. And well, yeah. yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, I, I think I say this somewhere in the book, in fact, like if you had cancer, like you would call your grandma who works at Sloan Kettering or something, you know, you would activate your entire social network to um, if your kid had cancer to like make sure you would be researching like in the medical literature, you would not be just researching in Google um, and you'd be, um, you know, talking to other people and, and just finding out, you know, what's the research center that has the best research in the world on this. Right. Um, but with this, everybody's ashamed because they think, you know, my kid is messed up, so it's my fault. And they just kind of Google in the middle of the night and then they call this number and then they say, we alone can fix your kid. Right. And because so many parents are frightened or ashamed to talk about it, they refrain from then reaching out to others who might have advice or um, might have recommendations for them. Um, and so, yeah, it, it just it continues on. Um, well, and also these places put enormous pressure on parents. So they say things like, you know, if you don't bring your kid tomorrow, they'll die. Um, and they, they just kind of terrorize people into thinking they must act before they can think. Yeah, the crisis mode, as we have often said, is not a great place to um, make good decisions from. And that's oftentimes what you feel yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, you know, when you're in fight or flight, your cortex is kind of shutting down and you like either need to, you know, fight, flee or freeze or tend and befriend as the various uh, stress responses go. But it doesn't um, it isn't conducive to abstract decision making about what is going to happen in the future. Yeah, those action urges can get uh, parents into a lot of trouble. And of course, no two sets of parents are alike. But could you elaborate on what you learned from some of those parents in terms of their motivation of why they ended up sending their children to residential treatment? Sure. So, I mean, the vast majority of them did not know that these places were abusive um, and they were not looking to, you know, outsource their kid or, um, you know, uh, just um, get somebody else to take care of the problem. Um, they thought that tough love was, uh, you know, just a treatment that had been widely studied and that, you know, everybody in the culture was saying this is what works for kids. So they went with it. Um, a lot of them felt a bit conflicted because they didn't really like that approach, but they were told that this is what's for the best and we just have to deal with it. Um, then there was a small group, um, maybe 10 or 20% that knew and that just wanted to get rid of the kid. 
Um, about half of the people who send their kids are in the midst of a divorce. Um, my little joke about this is that like, if your kid is acting out and you are getting divorced, you should go to boot camp, not the kid. Um, but um, the reality is that that kids do act out during divorces, as do parents. And sometimes I've seen situations where one parent wants to get rid of the kid, but they don't want the other parent to have the child, so they send them. Um, and the fact that there's no outside evaluation of the need for treatment, you know, I call it like a wallet biopsy. If you have enough money, you're in. It doesn't matter if you have a diagnosis or not. It doesn't matter if actually the problem is that the parents are being abusive. Um, so, you know, um, but most of them were not like that and were just people who were really worried about their kid and who, you know, um, panicked, basically. Mm, yeah, panic is a great word for it. Um, so sort of looking at the flip side, do you or did you see a place in our mental health system for any kind of residential treatment? And in which cases did you think it might be appropriate? I think there's definitely a place for residential treatment, a much more limited place than we currently have. But I think for the first thing you need to do is separate the need for respite for the parents from residential for the kids. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how you do that necessarily, but I know that that's sort of one element of this. Um, but the, the places, the times and places when people need residential are stabilization of medications, acute suicidal situations, um, and these kids who have just been in 20 foster homes and have never been able to have a stable home. Um, now, all of those situations, um, you know, again, there can be room for residential when somebody um, has a severe addiction that involves physical dependence. Um, and there certainly can be a need to get a person with addiction away from the environment that they're in. And probably this holds true for other uh, mental illnesses as well. I would argue that a better way of doing that is to, you know, get an apartment in a different area rather than um, have the treatment be residential. Because most people with most conditions, even, you know, physical conditions, you just are, you know, you're more comfortable at home. And if you can be at home, you should be at home. Um, and this is sort of um, generally accepted in the mental health world, um, you know, because the thing that really helps people heal is long term, high quality relationships. And you can't make that in three months in a place or six months in a place or something like this. So what you want to be doing is setting the foundation for the person's future. Um, and ideally, you do that from home. Now, again, there are definitely situations where um, people need actual help. But the thing is that you can't make a profit from this because the kind of help that, say, you know, this kid who has, you know, depression and PTSD and watched their mother be shot and then saw their father rape somebody and then, you know, lost their sister. And there were stories that are as extreme as this. Um when kids have, you know, been in lots of different foster homes and never really had a secure attachment at all, um, you know, you're talking about sort of habilitation rather than rehabilitation. 
And you will need, in order to deal with these really complex kids who have both extreme genetic predispositions and extreme environmental experiences, um, you really need like highly trained people. And in fact, in most residential places, most of the work done most of the time is not by highly trained professionals. Um, there is this horrible place in um, Massachusetts called the Judge Rottenberg Center where they use electric shock on, and I'm not talking about um, ECT, I'm talking about skin shocks that feel like bee stings on autistic kids and other so-called troubled teens. Um, this place costs over $200,000 a year and states pay it. Um, now you can imagine what you could do with that kind of money with individualized therapy for the particular problem of that particular kid at home. You could practically have somebody live in for that. Um, I think, you know, really in most situations, unless, you know, there's extreme abuse by the parents or the child is just so severely ill that they cannot live in a home setting for, you know, whatever reason, um, you want to get the services at home because basically what you're paying for in these residential places is the residential. Um, the treatment is just not like there may be one psychiatrist there. You will get more individualized psychiatric care outpatient. And this is like the paradox of this thing, because you think that the kid is getting intensive care when they're being just put in groups with other kids. Maya, I know you're not a healthcare provider, but you've done an admirable job of documenting that residential treatment centers just don't work. You also speak of the effectiveness of multi-systemic therapy for children in the juvenile justice system. However, in states like Washington and systems that are overwhelmed to the point that crisis response teams are simply not available to provide that timely help, what are the realistic choices that families have to get care for their children in crisis? I guess what I'm asking, you know, is there something between an outpatient therapy like DBT and court-mandated MST that might be more effectively implemented? That is the big question. And the, the problem is we're spending our money in the wrong places. Um, how to fix that, I do not know. But um, if we could take the money that's currently spent on residential and give it to parents to get individualized care that would be friendly and welcoming and empowering and respectful, um, you would be able to see, um, uh, I am, you know, much, much better outcomes. The problem is, of course, that we just don't do that. And the reality is that uh, parents often have nowhere to turn um, in crisis, particularly. And I've, I've known people in this situation, and it is just really frustrating to say, well, we know what works, but it's really not available. Um, and I know that's not a satisfying answer, but that is the reality right now. We really need to um, come up with a way. I mean, there are a few residential centers that I know of that um, Bruce Perry, who's my co-author, has worked with where they have um, worked really hard. And these are for kids that are in the child welfare system and have been in 20 foster homes and these kinds of extreme traumatic situations um, where it's a not-for-profit. Um, the focus is on being trauma-informed and on highly trained staff and all of the stuff that you can't afford to have if you're going to make a profit. The profit motive really is the problem here because it's like 
if you are to care for the kids who actually need the care, you need to spend a lot of money. And if you want to make money, spending a lot of money isn't going to be very helpful. And so that is the situation. And it really is just terrible for parents in crisis because there's very few places they really can turn. I love that you brought up this profit issue. It's something that Mike and I have come to ourselves um, because what we have found, um, you know, time and time again, is that there will always be a reason to keep your child longer somewhere if insurance will pay for it. <laughs> you know, it, it it really is such that um, I do believe that mental health um, cannot be a for-profit thing. It just is not that kind of an issue. Um, well, I mean, and I want to interrupt yeah. you here because the there actually was a case where I think this was in Texas and it was a very major psychiatric hospital chain. And they would have these guidance counselors find out about kids' insurance and then kidnap them into treatment until the insurance ran out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that literally happened. Yeah. Um, and like, it's usually less extreme. It's usually like, oh, of course, they need more care. Um, uh, but, um, you know, yeah, it's it's just it, the incentives are all wrong. Exactly. That's exactly right. The incentives are all wrong. In my, uh, I, I love the fact that you talked about the trauma-informed care model. You mentioned uh, your co-author, Bruce Perry, that you had talked about uh, a couple of models. Could you elaborate on even just one model that you feel is doing a better job? Bruce developed a model himself called the neurosequential approach. And basically what the idea there is if you can figure out at what age and stage the child had the worst trauma, you can try to help the development of the relevant part of the brain that would have gotten off track at that time. And sometimes these are nonverbal areas. So you may be using things like massage or music and movement um, and things that seem a little kind of alterna, but it's really like when you look at early childhood development, a lot of it is kind of tactile. Um, so the thing about all of it is that it must be voluntary for the child. The child can't be, if you have a traumatized child, putting them in a situation where they are completely powerless is replicating the trauma. So you really need to do as much as possible, uh, create an environment where the kid feels safe and where if they, um, act out or whatever, they're understood to be acting out of their experience, not being bad. Um, and so this approach sort of tries to do that. And they, um, I, he has some data so far, like where places that have adopted this have like almost eliminated the use of restraint. Um, and they have dramatically, you know, gone from a few times a day to a few times a year. Um, so, you know, that is the kind of thing you can see where trauma informed stuff will make a real difference. Cause at the very least you're not re-traumatizing people. <laughs> um, and you are hopefully allowing them to find out that human beings are not, um, always going to hurt them. And like a lot of times, like this is what they've learned, um, whether it's from, you know, the world or their parents or peers or whatever it is, they have come to a situation where they just feel, you know, 
impossible and impossible to love. And helping to undo that is hard. And I think one of the things that makes this all so difficult is that it's so individual, both of what goes wrong and both of, and also what is needed to help it go right. Um, you know, I, I know this from the addictions field where, you know, well, basically in order to recover, you need a sense of meaning and purpose and a way to carry that out without despair. So here I'm going to prescribe exercise, like exercise may be really good, but like, if you don't like it, it's not going to work. So how do we find something that you're passionate about that you like? Like, you know, maybe you want to be in theater, but maybe you want to, you know, fix cars. Like it's just, it's so individual that it's not kind of prescribable. You can't say make two friends and call me in the morning. Truly individualized, personalized care, but you really have to know the individual, the person you're dealing with. Yeah. And the, I mean, you know, I wish we could just like clone Bruce, <laughs> uh, you know, but of course then you need to like get him to have exactly the same life experience that he had had. Um, uh, you know, but it's, it's, it's really hard because it really does require like really capable, really trained people who are really patient um, and who are going to accept a low paying job mm. often. Um, so it's, you know, we just don't value caring and caring is really what's needed here. And this is, you know, this is a systemic problem. We, you know, we don't pay for childcare. Um, we think that, you know, um, it's just not of economic value when we know from the earliest age that the most important thing is to be cared for. Otherwise you're not going to be functional. What a powerful statement. Yeah. And I love that you brought in this idea of the nonverbal communication um, that is so essential to look at when we're treating um, children and adolescents. Um, because as I have, you know, thought about and seen time and time again, um, putting a child or an adolescent in a room across from a therapist or a doctor and sort of expecting them to be able to verbalize their feelings um, in a rational way is often an expectation that we really shouldn't have. Um, feelings don't necessarily easily um, translate into words, especially for those who are dealing with really challenging emotions. So I really think that is a, it's very important for the entire field to look at how to treat um, those who really have trouble verbalizing. And maybe with different environments. And it, right. And I mean, it's funny because this is where you would think, oh, wilderness is healing, so we should do this, you know? And I mean, I would say, I, you know, when people ask me about that, I certainly do think that nature can be healing, but I think, you know, there's a difference between uh, being dragged up Mount Everest physiologically and choosing to climb it because if you're dragged up there you're going to feel like you're being tortured and you're going to have an entirely different stress physiology than if you're going up there to challenge yourself um so similarly when parents ask me about this i always say well if your kid likes the wilderness and wants to challenge themselves like something like outward bound for non-troubled kids where they will be believed if they break their leg um is a much better and safer environment than one that calls it therapy, but doesn't believe you if you are injured. Right. Or dehydrated or, yeah, I know. I, I've, heard, I've heard the stories. So this actually is a nice segue to this question that I have about can treatment 
only be successful if someone is ready. And I've heard this a lot. Um, and I think there is a case for it. But I am curious about what your thoughts are. And if that is indeed the case, what can parents do when facing a loved one who is in true crisis? Right. Well, um, this is why in harm reduction, we say you have to meet people where they are. Um, and if their goal is to shoot up like twice a week instead of like every day, that may seem like an unrealistic goal, but you have to meet people where they are. And if you do that and you engage with them as if their um, goals and desires and dreams matter, um, you will be much more likely to get them to realize that like, wait a minute, this actually isn't working or actually it is working and your life is a lot better. Maybe you should go to one day a week. Um, you know, um, it's hard. I mean, and that, that's like, it's hard to hear, but that like, you really do, like the only thing you can do is meet people where they are because if you just try to force them to be somewhere else, they'll probably run away. Um, or they will just be there, but not be there mentally. Now, I think you can help people become ready but the way to do that is paradoxically by meeting them where they are and by um, doing what you can to keep them safe and showing them that you genuinely love them and are not trying to like control them or take away their pleasure or all the things that people fear about um, mental health and addiction treatment. Um, so it's hard. And I think it's especially hard for parents. Um, and, you know, when I've just written a history of harm reduction and, and there's a chapter in there about a guy who was working with um, his lover, um, who was also his partner in founding this organization. And he was also an active cocaine user. And he was like all in favor of harm reduction for the people they were serving. But he wanted his his guy to like you know, get sober. Um, and he had to realize that, you know, um, just like it's not, you, you have to meet them where they are. And what they ended up doing was like making accommodations for this guy such that he could um, uh, be able to do the brilliant work he was doing. And then if he did have a freak out, he could have it and somebody else would fill in. Um, so, you know, it was, um, but it, I think what I'm saying is it's harder to do this when it's with someone you personally are involved with than when you are a professional in the field. Um, and I guess that's just about the, um, you know, the sort of emotional ties that you have in terms of like wanting to fix it right now. Um, but I think, you know, so do people have to be ready? Kind of, sort of. Can you move them towards ready? Yes, but it's not by coercion. Right. And I, I do think that uh, the evidence-based medicine is mounting to show that value of har the harm reduction method. So thank you very much for kind of going into detail. That is so important. I'm going to ask a, a little bit of a personal question, so I hope that you don't mind. But I have always been curious about how your parents um, sort of managed um, while you were sort of doing what you were doing um, in, you know, at Columbia and then after and all of that? Like, was it hard for them? Did they try and get you into treatment? What was going on? Yeah, I mean, it was really a nightmare for them. And um, uh, my mom, like, sort of responded for a while, like, she just couldn't deal with me. And my dad was always, like, just, like, trying to, like, 
you know, sort of make sure I was still alive and, and rescue me and, and help me. Um, and, you know, they, they had kind of been told that, you know, you got to just like let them fall. Um, but they also resisted that. Um, and so when I finally realized that I did need help, um, I was able, like, I had a court date cause I was like, I had criminal justice issues. And, um, so I actually, my, I, my dad always came to the court dates. My mom couldn't deal with it. Um, so I knew that like he could take me to my mom's house and she would know how to get me into treatment. Um, cause she'd been telling me, you know, over and over, please get treatment, please get treatment. So we get there and, um, we get me into treatment and, and so, you know, and then they did the family week thing and all of that. Um, uh, but, um, I know it was like devastating for them. Um, and they really had no idea what to do, especially because like, as this kid who was like, you know, smart and capable and not seeming at all like somebody who would mess up. It was just really confusing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm, thank you for sharing that. Um, and um, because I think that is so important for other parents to hear that, you know, you, you, you can have this, you know, incredible desire to help your child and be there for them. And, you know, y- your control is limited. Um, but yeah, so thank you for that. So we're, I'm just going to end by actually seeing whether you have a great um, appendix um, at the end of the book that has a lot of terrific resources. Um, and I'm just wondering if you might sort of highlight a few that you think are important for um, other parents to know about, um, if you remember, because I know this is a book, you, you've written a lot of books since then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, that is going to be challenging at this point. But what I can say is that if you are considering any residential place, Google the name of that place plus the word survivor. And if there's a survivor's group, avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, So that's one thing. Um, But, um, you know, also interestingly, um, bizarrely enough, um, Paris Hilton went to one of these places, went to several of these places, actually. And I never thought I would be touting Paris Hilton. Um, But her organization um, and a group called Breaking Code Silence um, is helping kids who've been through this to kind of figure out ways to be active around um, making change, which is always helpful for recovery, I feel like, um, and, you know, fighting for better regulation of these places. Um, just like being able to talk to other people who've been through it is really helpful because one of the worst things about these programs is just that they make you distrust professional help entirely. So even if you know that you need help afterwards, you think help is going to be abuse. So it's really important to be able to get support for being able to be open about having survived abusive treatment, um, which is sometimes hard for mental health professionals to deal with. Um, so, you know, they are working on finding, uh, you know, uh, resources around that. Um, it really, um, some of the stuff, unfortunately, from my book is like now outdated because, um, you know, people change and go on with their lives on different things. Um, But I think, um, you know, also just kind of um, you need to trust your child. If your child is saying that this is a horrible place, regardless of if it's the best place in the world, if they are saying that 
you know, I hate it here. It's not happening. This is not working. You kind of got to believe them. Um, and, you know, it's like most kids will not. What I'm saying is if your kid is to the point of making up stories of abuse or actually being abused, um, either way, you got to get them out of there. Um, you know, because even if, and this is rare, they were actually making up stories of abuse, obviously that therapy is not working if that's what they're doing. Um, so, you know, do not allow yourself to, um, do not allow them to cut off communication with your kid or always monitor communication because that is a red flag. Um, you know, this idea, because they're kind of teaching you that you're toxic you know, like your kids need to be separated from you and you need to be separated from your kids, like to like fix things like that's kind of screwed up. Right. Um, you know, you wouldn't do that like or I guess sometimes they do, but it's still wrong. If somebody's depressed, they need to be able to talk to the people they love. I mean, yes, not their drug dealer, but, um, you know, uh, their parents and their loved ones. Like, why not? Um, you know, why would we treat something that we're claiming is an illness? by like taking away the social support that we know is going to be critical to overcoming that illness ultimately. Yeah. Li listening with loving compassion and kindness. Yeah. 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 Well, Maya, your, your insights are just so invaluable. I, I cannot thank you enough. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on and best of luck with the next book that I'm sure you are probably working on as we speak. Thanks for all your work, Maya. Thank you guys both so much, and uh, I appreciate being here. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I think in our next episode, we should talk about equine therapy and how it can be used in a good way or a bad way. You can say something about it right now. I think you have very strong feelings about horses, which you have, I know. No, you have. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, this is ridiculous, sad, tragic, and also speaks to the idea that when you are looking for any kind of treatment for anybody that you love, do not trust the advertising or trust then verify. So when we were looking at a treatment center and we saw this bucolic white colonial house on a hill with uh, lots of acreage ponies <laughs> she's she's smiling at me in that way uh, with horses trotting and galloping around barns and beautiful yellow labs, right? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, and I talked to her about this place and I showed you pictures and I asked the people. Oh my God, do you remember you were, you were like, you know, a puppy will sleep with you on your bed every night. I was terrified to you know, send you there. And so I was trying to get reassurances from the owners. And one of the things that I asked them was, 
What kind of animals can she actually interact with on a regular basis? And I was said to me that there were opportunities to interact with dogs and horses. And yes, the dogs would, you know, sometimes, or cats would sometimes come into their room and sleep on the end of their bed. That's what I was told. So, so when you went there... There were no puppies. There were no cats. When I was in my early 20s, I almost lost sight in one eye. I sat in my ophthalmologist's chair in a dark room, the wall lit with a familiar rows of letters. I read them off with my left eye and then switched to my right. The wall changed. There, instead of letters, was a circle of light, like a beam of a flashlight projected onto a white wall. There's something wrong with the machine, I told the doctor. What's the problem, he asked me. The letters are gone, I told him. It was only when he left me in the dark room for a suspiciously long amount of time that I began to question my assumption. The truth was that my retina had detached, but my desire to believe otherwise was so powerful that I quite literally didn't believe my own eyes. The power for the brain to deceive can be both protective and fatal. While there are situations in which knowing the truth is too painful to bear, not knowing the truth can prevent us from accepting help that in some cases may save our lives. Next time on Mad Waters. <laughs> 